Moon rocks from the Apollo missions have taught us a lot, but did you know that some are still sealed and we've never opened them? Why do we do that? Well, we're gonna find out by talking to an expert. We're gonna find out why we care about these tiny pieces of our nearest neighbor. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. I'm here with Barbara Cohen, and Barbara's a planetary scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Barbara's been analyzing lunar samples that have been returned from the moon. So today we're gonna to get down to the surface of the moon and talk about what we've learned. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks, Jim. You know, from the Apollo missions, we brought back about 850 pounds of material from six different missions. But, you know, didn't the Russians also bring back some lunar samples and how did they do that? Yeah, the Russians also brought back samples from the surface of the moon in a way the U.S. never has, and that's fully robotically. So they sent robotic landers to the moon that collected tubes of lunar samples, rolled them up, blasted them off the surface, and they landed on the Earth for us to analyze. Now, we hope to be able to do that someday for the U.S. and to return our own robotic lunar samples as well. You know, what kind of things are in this lunar material that we bring back? So the moon is a planet, just like the Earth is a planet and lots of other planets, and it's covered with rocks. And that's what we do as planetary geologists, is we treat rocks like they are history books of the planet they came from. So the rocks on the moon tell us about the surface of the moon and the interior of the moon. We call them different things. We call them breccias. A breccia is just a rock that's made up of tiny bits of other rock. They are sedimentary rocks, just like we have sedimentary rocks on the Earth, except they're not made by wind and water like they are on the Earth. They're made by impacts, by impact craters. There's also igneous rocks. They come out of volcanoes, same as they do on the Earth. They come out of volcanoes on the moon. There's metamorphic rocks, just like on the Earth, that are made by heat and pressure in the moon's interior. And then, of course, there's the regolith, the dust that seems to be everywhere on the moon. How is that created? The regolith is at the very surface of the moon and it's very small particles that haven't been welded into a rock yet. So that's all the little debris that's created when there's an impact on the surface of the moon and rocks get thrown around and broken up and they make what sometimes people call the soil of the moon, but it's not really soil like we think of it on the earth because it doesn't have any organic compounds. It doesn't have little worms and bacteria in it like we do on the earth. You know, Studying this kind of return material from space, in planetary science, there's a special name for it. And we call the people that do this kind of study in the laboratories, cosmochemists. So do you consider yourself a cosmochemist? Sometimes. I think I consider myself more of a planetary scientist. And the reason is, yes, I work in the laboratory and I work to take the rocks apart. And I work on isotopes, which are very specialized kinds of particles where we try to understand the makeup of the rocks at a very fine atomic level. And that is definitely cosmochemistry. But we also need to understand where those rocks came from, the field context. We need to understand the remote sensing to put them in a global context. So the rocks we brought back, we know where they came from and so we can get that context. But don't we find lunar samples that have made their way here on Earth other ways? How does that happen? 
We do. Those are called lunar meteorites, and they're very near and dear to my heart. I've done a lot of work on lunar meteorites. They get blasted off the surface of a planet. They get blasted off the surface of Mars or an asteroid or the moon, and they come to us um, and they intersect the Earth's orbit. So it's kind of like if you sit down on a mattress next to someone and you sit down really hard and boink, they go bouncing off. That's what happens on the surfaces of other planets. An asteroid or a meteorite will come in, blast a rock off the surface of that planet, and it comes to the Earth as a meteorite. So there are some meteorites that we found that look just like our lunar rocks. And like I said, they're very special. They have different isotopes and different elements. So when we look at our moon rocks that we brought back with the Apollo and Luna samples, we know that they're different from the Earth. And then when we find a rock on the Earth that looks like those, we know it's a meteorite from the moon. So how do we get those? I mean, can you just walk outside and pick one up? If you're in Antarctica, you can just walk outside and pick one up. Not everyone can be in Antarctica, though. Well, why is Antarctica so special? So we have a program called the Antarctic Search for Meteorites. And the reason we have that is because when meteorites fall on the Earth, they fall randomly over the whole Earth. And that means 75% of them will be in the oceans and we'll never find them. And a large portion of the other ones will fall in places that people never are, like the vast wilds of Siberia. So to find one in your backyard would be really, really special. And instead, what we do is we look in places where meteorites can accumulate over hundreds of thousands of years. And those are deserts, like the hot deserts of Africa and the cold deserts of Antarctica. So we have a program that goes to Antarctica every year and finds the meteorites. They accumulate there. And really, you can walk outside your tent and pick them up. Wow. You know, I guess because of the contrast, you know, these rocks are dark and the snow on these glaciers is blinding bright and white. The contrast, it's easier to see these. That's absolutely true. But Antarctica slips you a little curveball and that there's a lot of black rocks in Antarctica too. <laughs> so we have to learn to distinguish between the terrestrial rocks and the meteorites. Humans are very good at that. So when we go down to the Antarctic, it's done during the summer season because it's too cold down there during the winter. How many of these uh, total meteorites do we bring back? It varies on the location and uh, what the collection site is like. So some seasons have had as few as 100 and some have had over 1,000. Wow, wow, per season. So we've been doing this for several decades. We have more than 25,000 meteorites in the U.S. collection <laughs> from Antarctica. That's fantastic. Well, what kind of analysis techniques do you do on these samples? We take them into the laboratories. We uh, look at their elements. So that is the atoms that they're made out of. And then we look at the isotopes, which are the weight of the different atoms. And all of those and the ratio to each other tell us about their parent bodies. So we wanna know whether something formed in a volcano or whether it formed in an impact. And then we wanna know when those things happened. So the what tells us what happened on the surface of the body and then the when puts those events in order. Recently, uh, there was a report that announced that we found an early Earth rock in the Apollo samples. How could that be? That's amazing, right? That's a really interesting result. That paper did a very careful analysis of different, not just isotopes, but different states of the same element that formed under different conditions. And so they went into a mineral called zircon. Zircon is a very resistant mineral on the Earth. It's the oldest mineral that we have on the Earth is called the zircon. And they found some zircons on the moon. We've been analyzing those for several decades. And they found a signature in those zircons that doesn't belong to the moon, that would be very difficult to understand having been formed on the moon. And so they speculate that it wasn't formed on the moon. In parallel, there's been an idea that's been out there for a 
about two decades now, but maybe very early in Earth's history, Earth also experiences impacts. The Earth could have launched meteorites off of the Earth, and they could have landed on the moon. That would have happened very early in Earth's history. We don't have big impacts now or a lot of impacts now on the Earth. So for that to happen, it was probably very early in Earth's history, and these zircons would be consistent with that hypothesis. It's not proven, but it's also very interesting to find anything that's even a candidate for that process. Now that's absolutely fascinating to me to be able to bring back a rock that was uh, born on Earth, but yet traveled to the moon. In fact, uh, the analysis real seems to indicate- Real sample return. Yeah, that's real sample <laughs> return. <laughs> the sample has been dated to be something like 4 billion years. Yes. Now, can we find rocks here on Earth that are 4 billion years old? It's very rare for us to find those. And like I said, the zircons are the oldest rocks on the Earth. They are, in fact, only single minerals. They're the only things that have been able to withstand all of the Earth's processes that have happened over 4 billion years of history. All the wind and water and plate tectonics, they really crunch up the rocks on the Earth. And so we don't have really old rocks on the Earth. That's why we look to the moon for some of these very ancient rocks. Yeah, so the Earth is sort of resurfacing itself. And so getting the really old rocks is, is very hard to do. It's very hard to do. The oldest rocks that we have on the Earth are in Australia and in Canada, and they're not even 4 billion years old. They're about 3.8 billion years. But some of the minerals in them, those rocks are sediments, which means there had to be a rock before them that got broken up and incorporated. And so that's what we look for, are the minerals in those rocks that predated the rocks they're in now. You know, when we think about it, if this rock is 4 billion years old, originating from the Earth, and it made it to the moon, when we look at how far the moon has moved over time, the moon must have been really close to the Earth at that period of time. Mm, that may not be uh, on a human scale that much closer. It's only moving <laughs> away from us at about two centimeters a year. Yeah, but four billion years ago, I bet sure. it's at least a quarter of that distance. <laughs> yeah. And, so at least it was closer. It was a little closer and eclipses <laughs> would have looked a lot different from that perspective. Now, what kind of laboratory equipment do you have that you use today to analyze samples? I run what we call the Mid-Atlantic Noble Gas Research Lab, and you can pronounce that moon girl. <laughs> and we look at isotopes of noble gases. Now, noble gases are elements that have a full electron shell, and that means they don't like to combine with other elements to form compounds. They like to hang out on their own. I like neon and some neon, of these. Neon, argon, krypton, xenon, helium. Yep, exactly. And we like those elements because they are radioactive decay products of other elements. So I use a process called radiometric dating, and that's when one atom spontaneously converts into another atom by radioactive decay. And I'm particularly interested in the potassium-argon system. Potassium is a naturally rock-forming element. It's in your bananas. It's in your granite countertops. It is very slightly radioactive. Don't be alarmed. It's very, very slight. But we can measure that in our laboratory. We can measure the decay of that potassium into argon. And from that, we can tell when that rock formed or when it was heated up. And that puts those planetary events in order, like I said, volcanoes and impacts. So some of the things that you find out is the geological history of the moon. What other things are you learning from the lunar samples? We also learn about the history of volatiles on the moon. And by volatiles, I mean things that are a gas to us or a liquid. So things like water on the moon, that's a really interesting topic these days. We wanna know how much water was on other planets 
that helps us understand their geologic history, but it also helps guide future human lunar exploration. If we could live off the land and get our own water, we wouldn't have to bring it all the way from Earth. So one of the things that we're doing a lot is understanding the water content of lunar minerals and trying to look for places that water may exist on the moon. Wow, that concept of water on the moon, you know, it has no atmosphere. Where are they finding this water? The water is in multiple different places. And this is one of the great success stories of the Apollo samples, is when the Apollo samples came back and we analyzed them with the techniques that we had at the time, we could not detect water in the samples. But then as time went on and our analytical techniques got better and better, we went back and analyzed those again, and we found very trace amounts of water in them. So there's trace amounts of water in the lunar interior that come out in volcanic samples. There's a little bit that's adhering to the surface of samples. That comes from the solar wind. The solar wind is putting out hydrogen. There's oxygen in the rocks. When that hydrogen slams into those rocks, it makes tiny amounts of water. There's also water at the lunar poles. The lunar poles are a really special place because there are places that are permanently shadowed. There's places that sunlight has never gotten to for two billion years or maybe even four billion years. If anything gets in there, like a comet or a meteorite that's bringing in water or water that's hopping around on the surface, it sticks there and it stays there and it builds up into big deposits. And we're very interested in those as places where we might be able to dig those up and use them for astronauts. Well, you know, the Apollo missions were all you know, pretty much centered around the equator or at least low latitudes. So this concept of having water in the poles, how can that be? Why are, they, why are, why are we seeing the accumulation of water there? Because at the poles, it's very cold and there are these very, very cold places, these permanently shadowed craters. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has measured the temperature of those permanently shadowed craters, and it's about 20 degrees Kelvin. That's colder than the surface of Pluto. So they're very cold, and they're right in our backyard. And they serve as traps that have those molecules like water, carbon dioxide, ammonia, methane. They build up in those traps. Whereas at the equator, it gets very hot. Because the moon has no atmosphere, the sun just beats down on it and those molecules turn into gases and they escape the moon. Well, you know, we've been analyzing samples that we returned from the moon for 50 years. Uh, it, it, you would think we've known everything we can possibly know from that kind of analysis. But is that true? Is there other things that we can find out? With the samples that we have, you're right, they came from um, the near side, near the equator, and that was because we wanted astronaut safety, we wanted them to come back to us safely, so we wanted to put them in places that were not dangerous. But there's lots of places on the moon that we have not sampled. We haven't sampled the whole far side of the moon. There's an enormous basin on the far side of the moon called the South Pole Aiken Basin that may have punched all the way down to the lunar mantle. That would be a very exciting place to analyze samples from. Now, when you say basin, how is that created? A basin is a gigantic impact crater. When you look up at the moon on a clear night, on a full moon, there's big round black areas. Those are giant impact craters on the moon. We call those basins. And if you could see the far side with your naked eye, which you can't, but you can look on LRO and you can see the data, the South Pole Aiken Basin is the biggest impact crater in the inner solar system. It's 2,500 kilometers across. Yeah, it's huge. In fact, uh, it gets its name from the fact that it extends from the South Pole 
to a small crater called Aiken. That's right. <laughs> South Pole Aiken Basin. That's right. Basins on the moon are named for uh, features on either side, so yeah, right. they're hyphenated. How do you get these lunar samples? Uh, we store them in our curation facility at the Johnson Space Center, but uh, is this a loan agreement or how does that work? Yeah, so the way that we uh, get and analyze lunar samples is a pretty long odyssey. It's not something that happens overnight. First, a researcher would have an idea of something that they wanted to test with a lunar rock or something we want to investigate in the lunar samples. That comes from going to conferences, reading papers, talking to our colleagues, and trying to generate ideas that we can test with lunar rocks. We have 800 pounds, as you said, but we're not getting any more anytime soon. So we treat that as a very precious resource. So when I want to request a lunar sample, I make sure that I cannot do the same kind of work on any other kind of rock. I can't do the same kind of work on a terrestrial analog that I really need that lunar rock. And that I've given a lot of thought to the analytical protocol that I'm gonna put into it so I can use as little as possible. Then I write a request and the request goes to a committee and it's a committee of other scientists who read all of the requests. Twice a year they take requests. They read them all and they review them and they say, is this important science? Can this be done in this laboratory? Are they making the best use of the lunar samples they can? And the answer isn't always yes, but they will try to put you in touch with someone who can help you better your request. If the answer is yes, then the curation staff at Johnson Space Center works to fulfill your request by uh, cutting up samples or doling out samples. They put them in a little box or a little vial and then yes, it is a loan agreement. We sign security protocols so that we will take care of the samples. We will not let them out of our possession. Um, and then we can only do the things that we said we were going to do. We can't just willy-nilly do any analysis we want. And then when we're done with the analysis, we send those samples back to Johnson Space Center and they keep them and maybe someone else would wanna use them someday. Well, you know, some of the analysis that's done is destructive. Can you actually propose a, uh, to get access to a small sample and then destroy it in that analysis process? Is that okay? Yes, that is okay if you have a very good reason. So you need to demonstrate to the committee that you have a really good reason for doing destructive analysis. But yes, many of our analyses are destructive of very small amounts of material. And when I did my dissertation, I actually calculated the monetary value on the street of the lunar material that I destroyed during my dissertation. And it turned out to be only a few hundred dollars because the samples we use are so small and we're so careful with them. Are there some samples in our archive that we've never really analyzed to any level? There are, they're called pristine lunar samples. When the Apollo samples came back, we took a portion of them and we put them into permanent storage for future generations to use when they come up with techniques that we couldn't even think about. In fact, we're going to open some of those. We just had a call. Thank you, Jim, and others at NASA headquarters. You're welcome. They uh, decided to open some of those for the community now. And that was prompted in large part by some of the analysis techniques that we talked about earlier that found water in the lunar rocks. We have more analysis techniques that we can use now on lunar rocks, and hopefully we will see some of those results soon. So how many samples go out to the science community a year, do you think? There are hundreds of active Apollo wow. sample researchers. Um, so I think there are tens of samples, maybe 50 or so samples that go out every year. And they go all over the world, not just to the US, but to every country, uh, all countries that want to, anyone can uh, request a sample. And if they have a good reason, they can receive that sample. 
Well, you know, it sounds like we haven't brought samples back from every place that we would like. So where on the moon would you like to get some additional samples and what will that tell us? Personally, I'm very interested in the history of impacts on the moon. And that is something that the Apollo samples opened up for us in a major way. We did not understand the role of impacts or the history of impacts before we got the Apollo samples, but they've been a blessing and a curse. We formulated some really interesting hypotheses based on those samples, that there was a spike in impacts um, that affected the Earth and the moon. Uh, but now we know that those samples, they all came from the lunar near side. They may all have been affected by one big basin that formed at that time. So now we're reopening that idea. We're questioning our original hypothesis. And personally, I would like to have more samples from actual basins, basin impact melt sheets. Now that's very difficult because a lot of those have been covered by basalts. So we're looking for places where maybe a little bit of melt sheet is peeking through, or maybe we hook up a two meter drill and go up there and really get some good samples. <laughs> Sounds great. You know, as NASA's moving now towards a really important program going back to the moon, is sample return part of that thinking? Absolutely. Like I said in the beginning, Russia, the USSR, sent robotic rovers that got samples for us. And that is a lot less expensive than sending humans, although you don't get the benefits of having humans on the moon. They're different from each other, but they're complementary. But I think that going to the far side, going to lots of different places on the moon, if we could have robotic sample return to some of these places, it would just be a huge benefit, not only to the lunar community, but to the planetary science community for figuring out how the moon works and by extension, how other planets work. Yeah, that's fantastic. Our astronauts that will be going to the moon in the future, they just have to be trained in lunar <laughs> geology. They just, you know, have to be able to land and, and look for the right material and, and bring the right stuff back. Yes, and we at Goddard are doing some of that astronaut training alongside JSC. That's great. Well, you know, I always ask my guest, um, what happened in their life? What was the person, place, or thing, or activity that really got them excited about becoming the planetary scientist they are today? So Barbara, what was your gravity assist? Well, Jim, I wasn't really interested in science as a kid. I wasn't one of those nerdy kids who had a telescope at age three or anything like that. But I do trace this back to a program called Olympics of the Mind. It's now called Odyssey of the Mind. And it was a problem-solving competition. I was always super interested in logic problems and puzzles and strategy games and things like that, which you may not think has anything to do with science. But that really got me into a mindset where I could solve a problem creatively. And that, to me, is the heart of science. We try to identify problems that will advance science, but we don't do the same thing over and over and over again. We really need to bring creative solutions into the workplace to do things that have never been done before, to use new techniques or new samples and think about things in a new way to get answers that improve on our current understanding. So the, the things that we did in that program were things like use 50 mouse traps to set off a solenoid and a pop a balloon and move things from one place to the other where you, you could only touch the first mouse trap and they had to do its own thing. Problem or solving. Problem solving. Yeah. Um, and then we had to 
build a vehicle that only had human power and we had to pick up objects and move them around. And, and so you could really let your creative flag fly. You could do this in a million different ways, um, but you had to solve the problem. So you could do it in this fun way, but you had to ultimately solve a problem. And that kind of logic combined with creativity set me on the path to being a scientist. Well, in particular, uh, you know, our lunar sample analysis, that's still hands-on activity. Absolutely. Yeah, so Absolutely. I can see where that helped you. Yep. Well, Barbara, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about the moon, our nearest neighbor, and it was so fascinating. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jim. What's up, Gravity Assist listeners? Producer Liz Landau here. Our colleagues at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center are working on a new podcast called NASA Explorers Apollo, a series about the people behind past, present, and future lunar science. They've also been collecting stories from people like you, reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. If you'd like to share your story, record an audio clip and send it to apollostories at mail.nasa.gov. Today's Gravity Assist concludes with a memory from a listener named Jennifer Butts. My name is Jennifer Butts. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but today I make my home in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. It was July 20th, 1969. My brothers and I were sitting around a campfire just outside Halifax, Nova Scotia, in a campground we called home as Dad did a sabbatical at the University of Halifax. Mom had just brought out a tray of bananas as the fire roared brightly and the full moon hung overhead. It was magic. We could just make out the grainy images on our little black and white television. We looked overhead and munched thoughtfully on our bananas, swearing that we could see the lunar module as it touched down. We were transfixed as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin floated down the stairs into that puff of lunar dust and planted the U.S. flag. To this day, whenever I see a full moon, a little part of me is that six-year-old girl in the woods in Nova Scotia looking up at the moon and wondering, did the astronauts see me as clearly as I saw them that July night? <laughs>